Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Essay Voices from the Field. Each week we aim to bring you the true stories of student affairs. Over the course of this podcast, we hope to bring you both voices that feel like they are telling your own story and those that bring you stories you've never heard before. The podcast with expert guests and practical advice. Get ready to learn and become the best higher ed professional you can be. Welcome to Student Affairs Voices from the Field. I'm your host, Dr. Corliss Bennett, and I am happy to have you here. This podcast is sponsored by NASPA. Today, I am really excited to have a staple in the NASPA community, Dr. Larry Roper. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. Great. Well, before we get into the topic, I want you to share a little bit about your path uh, in higher ed and in your path through NASPA. I'm sure it kind of mirrors one another. Sure. So I've been in the higher ed community and profession for over 40 years now. And I've my career is actually taking me through both small private institutions and um, large state universities. I started primarily in, in housing and residence life and then moved up to more generalist type roles in terms of being the director of career services, director of multicultural affairs, director of housing, dean of students. And then I've been a vice provost of student affairs at Oregon State. I took that job in 1995. And prior to that, I had been vice president for student affairs at a small Catholic institution in Rochester, New York for seven years prior to that. And my, my path through NASPA started with um, some basic, you know, volunteering roles, starting by sort of being on some committees that were related to the, you know, regional conventions, national conventions, just sort of doing uh, basic sort of, you know, hands-on work. And then um, as I began to sort of just hang around the association more, I really began to feel that that was my professional home. And then really began to just sort of seek out opportunities, at least to be able to support the association everywhere that I could. And so I, at various times, have been on the, the NASPA board. I was the chair of a, of a national conference when, we, when it was held in um, Phoenix. I've been on several program committees in terms of being major speakers chair for the joint NASPA-ACPA um, conference, pre-conference programs for NASPA. Uh, been on the NASPA um, Foundation Board. So just a variety of leadership roles um, in the association. And as I said, it has been my professional home. It's interesting because, you know, we all start in different places. And one I, I would say that one of the places that really kind of springs you right into student affairs is usually either admissions or res life for some reason. Yes, and I think for, and, it, and that's just my opinion, maybe some others might say no, but I would say that admissions and res life is the gateway to student affairs, even though in most institutions, admissions might be under enrollment management, but they work hand in hand with student affairs in, in a lot of cases. Absolutely. I found that I, in my role at Oregon State and when I was the vice provost, I, enrollment management actually reported to me through student affairs. And as with that in housing, and it was really something wonderful about having all those folks around the table together as we were talking about the, the student experience, because essentially we were able to talk about the lifespan of the student from the first time that they made contact with us all the way through to us, you know, walking them across the stage at the end of the year for at the end of their four or five years for commencement. 
Um, and so there was something really important about those those shared voices being at the table together. Absolutely. And so what um, exactly, I know you kind of let us know your path. What exactly is your role right now? Right now, I am a professor of language, culture, and society. And through that role, I chair our graduate program in college student services administration. And I also coordinate our undergraduate social justice minor. Oh, wow. And I've been, I've been doing that for five years. I did the vice provost role for 20 years. And, and while doing that, I continued to, you know, to hold faculty rank, hold tenure. Um, in this College of Liberal Arts, but I also, you know, I continue to teach, but now I'm, I'm exclusively in that academic role. Interesting. Wow. Tell us a little bit about Oregon State. Yeah, we're about um, 30,000 students. It's really interesting. When I got here in 1995, we were just under 13,000 students. So we've had tremendous growth <laughs> um, during the time since I've been here, but we're about 30,000 students. We're a land-grant university where we are proud of saying that we're land, space, and sea grant and sun grant university. So we have all those designations. We are, will be probably described as being in more of a rural area, a small town of about 50,000 people. Um, our student enrollment is about 25% students of color, probably 15% international students. The largest of our domestic underrepresented students are Latino and the smallest population of African-American students. And again, that's just sort of a typical of what, what the Northwest representation is in terms of domestic populations. And what will you attest to the growth from 13,000 to 30? I mean, that's that's a big growth, but I mean, that is a 25, 25 years or so, 26 years. Yeah. So when I arrived here, the state was in the midst of a, a significant budget decline. And so they had dramatically reduced the number of programs and services at the university. And so the university lost probably a quarter of their student enrollment over a couple year period before I rose, um, arrived. And since then, we've just been on this process of, of rebuilding that and stabilizing budgets, um, being more thoughtful about outreach, program development. We also, including in that number, are, we have a very large online presence. So we're one of the largest sort of online academic programs in the country. About how many? Just curious. We probably have 10,000 or so students online. And so our on-campus um, population, those who are on campus are closer to 20-something thousand. And it's interesting how the online population has increased several institutions who now offer those uh, program listings. So it's really an interesting how, I'm sure somebody's written about it, but I'm wondering how do we serve those students? And that's probably another podcast of, you know, having an, an online student affairs presence. But that's, that's, that's later. I mean, I just thought about that. Yeah, we actually do have outreach and services to those students. So yeah, it, it would be, that would be a really interesting conversation to have. But the conversation that we're here for today is very interesting. I don't know if it's just me or I'm paying more attention or it's more in my face. And that could be because of social media. I think social media has just taken over everybody's life in some shape, form or fashion from getting the tweet. I don't have Twitter. Oh, I think I do, but I don't use it because I don't know how to use it. I'm just like, okay, I can't keep up with uh, everything. So my main thing for me is Facebook. But our own president of the United States, you know, he tweets. And so I think it's just blown up everything. 
And I, I just, I don't know if it's just our campus, our institutions are just going through so many tragedies lately. Absolutely. And I just, I, I don't know if it's just, again, and for me, it might be just the social media, because, um, you know, I was at University of Southern California for 20 years, and I just don't remember hearing about so much. I mean, the very first thing, of course, was the on-campus shooting over in Virginia. And that was like the first big thing. And then all of a sudden, it feels like in the last five years, like everything has just, I mean, it's between scandals and student deaths and you know, it's really out of control. And I always wonder, because I'm I'm kind of upper middle management, you know, like right below the senior leaders. And I see you guys, and I put you in that, obviously in that, in that realm, I see you guys like on having to say stuff on TV and having to say stuff to the campus and you look so poised. And then when I was reading your article, I was like, okay, there is that human quality that you guys kind of have to check your baggage. You have to you have to kind of not choose a side if you know how you feel about what has really happened. But in but in the public eye, you have to you have to appear so neutral. How do you guys do it? Please explain. I think there's a challenge between being neutral and expressing values. And so I think that one of the things that I would challenge people to do in the presence of that is actually not to be neutral, but to stand in the center, which can sometimes seem like it's a place of neutrality, but is actually the place of valued centeredness. So whenever there's a controversy or there's conflict or there are things that happen on campus, I think the responsibility of the leader is to stand in the middle of the mess. Interesting. Uh-huh. And when you stand in the middle, you stand there and you just hold up your values, you hold up your mission, and you just ask the question, how do we resolve this in a way that we come out of it being who we say we are or being who we aspire to be? And so as a result, you don't have to choose a side because you're choosing the side of the rightness of the institution's mission. And so when an act of violence happened and that's psychological, emotional, physical, if your mission is about the wholeness of individuals and it's about educating in a way that you demonstrate a commitment to equity and justice or whatever it is that's in your mission. And most missions have now included some language to that degree that you ask that question about how do I, as a leader, navigate my institution through this in a way that our allegiance is to our mission and the commitment that we make to individuals in that mission. And I think that's the hardest work to do because what we get pulled toward is choose a side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's like, who's right and who's wrong? Well, when you look at it through the frame of your mission, it will be very clear who's and who's wrong and what's wrong. And what you have to do is to get the institution to what's right. What's right in terms of our response, what's right in terms of the temperament that we show, You know, what's right in terms of the, um, the, the care that we demonstrate towards students, our community, those who are affected. Okay. 
And I could, and and that makes sense because again, like you mentioned, most if not all of our uh, missions at our institutions do include something about you know preparing the whole student. And I, when I think about the whole student, I'm thinking mind, body, soul. Because you know, education obviously is the fourth one. But when you really think about whole, is mind, body, soul. Are our students healthy? Do we have programs to make sure that they have at least access to health care, healthy eating habits, and such? If they're spiritual, you know, there are different clubs and organizations that may have a religious uh, piece to that. And then just just having that sense of belonging on our campus will really help bring all those together. But when there's a tragedy like that. You know, for example, a student death. I mean, we, we've, <laughs> I, I'm now currently at the California State University Humboldt, and I've been here since July 2016. And Larry, we have lost just over 20 students. And again, you know, trying to, you know, appear to make sure that I'm there for the students, you know, as an administrator, you mentioned, you know, the human qualities, you know, not afraid to cry, you know, because it's, it's, it hurts. It hurts. I think the campus appreciates when they see how upset you are about what's going on. And it's just hard to, you know, especially when there's a student death and you have an idea who the killer is, and but you can't really... Say, yes, I know John Doe did it, but you have to hold that in. But then you have to hold up your students who are coming to your office and you know, hold them in your arms. They're crying. It's just it is emotionally draining to try to make sure, like you said, to uphold to the mission and, and making sure that, OK, I need to make sure that these students are eating. Going back to what I said um, with you know mind, body and soul piece. And make sure the students are are have a space where they can just cry, where they can just speak about the person, or scream and yell because they're mad about the injustice that the the court system, you know, the case. So it, it's it's really difficult. And then for for you, you know, as a former VP and former, you know, in those roles that you've done, I mean, now that we're seeing it more often. Do you have or does your institution have more training to be prepared for these type of things now? Because I feel like we, we all need to start thinking about that in our institutions, about the training of like every little thing from scandal to death. Yeah. And I think that part of it is that, you know, it's like there's all kinds of training. Part of the challenge sometimes is to put each kind of training in its box. Right. And so in some ways, like the direct response training, the people who have to respond to, you know, the people who we train in sort of crisis and incident response, who are sort of the first ones in, who are walking into communities, who are calling the parents, who are doing those kinds of things. You know, that sort of is a one that sort of is like a heart and head kind of thing. Right. So you have to sort of think about steps and stuff. But you've got to also have your heart open because you're dealing with the sort of the human impact of it. But we also go through, you know, people go through media training, right? So, like, how do you handle the media? Well, that's a different kind of thing. And sometimes what happens, what I see happens in the media training is that when people go out and speak to the media, those who are hurt can tell that you are trained to talk to the media and that you're not talking to them. And that can actually add a level of hurt in itself, right? Because it's like now I'm talking sort of from do this institutionalese kind of language, 
that has me as sort of this distant person. But what my community needs to hear is more than just this talking in these vague terms in these ways that's sort of protective from the um, the possible litigation. Right. So that's the hard part is that each of the trainings that we go through communicate a different disposition. And sometimes they come up against each other. So the person who's talking to the media and then the person who's responding is like, I wish this person had talked about this the way that I'm feeling this. And so we, and so our training isn't always connected in a way that allows us to come out in a way that we're really dealing with the whole, the wholeness of the institutions that we're trying to, to lead through the difficult times. Right. And like you said, and you can totally tell when someone's saying, well, yes, the institution is going to, through an investigation. We have protocols and and we will make sure that we do due diligence and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and like you said, that just makes it worse because the student is watching that. And it's like, oh, the president doesn't know what he's talking about or the vice president, she, you know, or the, you know, the president, she doesn't have any feeling. She doesn't care that this student was is hospitalized and in a coma because of this and that. Yep. And they will sometimes speak out. So we just had an incident on our campus where we had a student who got arrested and, you know, the, the police threw her to the ground and handcuffed her and all because she was riding her bike the wrong way on the wrong side of the street. And the African-American female riding her bike and our university spokesperson in his public statement says, well, you know, we're confident that this wasn't racially motivated. And, you know, and I actually sent an email to our to our president saying, you know, I'm going to I'm going to contact this person and talk to him. But but since I left the administration, I tried really hard to stay out of administrative responding to administrative decisions because I know everything, how challenging it is to be in those roles. But there is a difference between in our hearts wanting to believe and hope that our colleagues weren't motivated by race in their reaction. There's a difference between that and knowing that they weren't. And that when you come out and you say that it wasn't, you immediately dismiss the feelings and the hurt of an entire community. No, you're right. You're right. And that's that challenge of sort of you want to be a spokesperson and you want to come out and have the university look good or the institution look good. But in the process of doing that, you dismiss the the lived experiences of other people. And that's so that's that media training. Yeah, but the media you need to make sure you come out and you protect the institution, you do this. And then at the same time you abandon other parts of the community. And again, it makes such a difference of how, you know, even when you're addressing students, you know, as far as the media is the same similar, but when you're not in a media situation and you're addressing your student body at some kind of assembly or just, you know, you had a town hall you know the way that person speaks, their mannerism, their whole aura is going to be judged by students, staff, and faculty. And that's why I believe that for senior leaders, there's a particular challenge for them to make sure that they're in touch with what their own stuff is and what they're bringing to those situations. And if you stand before people and you've got all your own fears about race or diversity or whatever, you know, the, the the underlying or the overwhelming dynamic is, you know, the, the difficult dynamic to talk about is in that situation, you're not going to serve your community well. You've got to have this ability to really come from your core and to really talk in an authentic and in some ways a vulnerable way. 
about what it means to be leading your institution through that particular challenge. Have you had a issue that came on campus and maybe you can just chat about how you handled it there in your years there at, at Oregon State that where you had to be the face or one of the faces to address the student body, the crowd, the town hall, the media? And, and, and can you talk a little bit about how you handled that? Sure. Yeah, I've had plenty. I've had lots of training on that you know, by, by fire. Um, you know, and some of them are some of the some really heinous racial incidents. And, you know, one of them is sort of, it was, it was really a despicable act where African-American male student walking by a fraternity house, students urinated on him out of the window. Some white students urinated on him. And, you know, yeah, and then, you know, and began to sort of insult him with the N-word and then throwing firecrackers at him. I mean, it was, it was just, you know, the indignity of it. And so the student came to see me in my office on the Monday, it happened over a weekend, the Monday to tell me about it. And obviously my, my first reaction was, so how are you doing? You know, let's talk about, you know, what it feels like to be you right now. And so we talked through it all, talked about the kind of supports that he needed. I did some handoffs to get him to, you know, folks in counseling, other places where he could talk through it. Also, you know, brought in the person from student conduct to, to talk about that. And then my next um, act was to call the fraternity house and to get the president on the phone and say, you know, I need you to call a house meeting for tonight and I, I want to come over. So I went to the house and just asked them, say, so how are you all doing? Tell me about what happened. Tell me how you got there and tell me what you're prepared to do going forward. So we had a long talk. And again, this is sort of my challenge of managing from the middle. And in talking to them, I said, so I have a responsibility to lead you all to a better place, just like I have a responsibility in the young man's name. You know, I'll just make up a name, you know, Robert. Um, is to also lead Robert to a better place based upon the fact that he left his interaction with you all in worse condition than he was prior to interacting with you all. So I need to also get him to a better place. And I need to get our community to a better place because, you know, during that day, you would imagine what would sort of have boil up on campus as people became aware of that particular incident. So we talked for a while and then we, we did a town hall um, where I wanted to talk about it. And I said, first of all, I said, before I can talk about this as, as a leader of this community, as one of the leaders in this community, I need to talk about this. I need to get some of my personal stuff out of the way first. And I need to tell you that my first reaction is that I could have been Robert, that they were not distinguishing at all who was going by there. They were not giving any account to who the humanity of the person walking by. So me walking by there would have as little humanity as anybody. So it's not necessarily about him. It's about their perception of people who look like me. And I have to deal with that as I lead through this. So know that that's there. Nonetheless, I'm standing before you as a person who sees myself as being integral to this community and to healing us. And I have to sort of 
put aside what my personal feelings are and go to what I have been called to do here in my role as the Vice Provost of Student Affairs for this community. So they knew that my personal stuff, I think that that's part of what you got to sort of let them know your personal stuff is there. And you've got to say, but here's the position from which I'm leading through this. And I'm very clear in my mind where I have to deal with my own personal impulse to want to be angry and to want retribution. Mm -hmm. But what I need to do is to figure out how to lead our institution through healing. So we just end up um, identifying, talking through that and talking about the student conduct thing was one thing and we would let that take care of itself. But there was a bigger issue that we needed to deal with, that there was an incident that was there around what had happened, but there's a bigger issue. And the issue is the ease with which some members of our community were able to engage in racist acts toward others. And that we don't want to get so caught up in just responding to this one incident that we missed that there's a bigger issue to which this is connected. And we need to think about all the other cases where that's happening as well. And if we're going to respond to this, let's respond to it in a big enough way that we deal with the big issues that are the big issue that is there, which is that there is active racism happening on this campus every day and that dehumanizes the people in our community. So we, um, we just began to do, we began to do lots of work. We began to do forums and um, engage in really structured conversations with the focus of doing that. We, again, a lot of things happened over time, but we really redoubled our commitment to our cultural centers. So over time, we rebuilt all of our cultural centers. There are independent structures. Um, we created a covenant for our campus that says that the cultural centers will never go away and that they will never be moved unless they want to be moved. We increased, we hired some staff. We actually created, at that point, we did not have our um, Office of the Culture, um, Diversity and Cultural Engagement, so we committed to some new hires. So we did some things to address the infrastructure that would allow for the kind of education and supports that we needed uh, with our students. But it started, first of all, with us acknowledging the kind of pain that had been created on that campus and the need for there being to be a broader leadership than we had seen up to that point. Larry, I'm I'm speechless, but I'm not. And I'm just, I have just learned so much in that seven minutes or so. I mean, wow. I really imagine myself there with you, you know, with you speaking about this. And I think what people forget to do is admit where they are before they start the process. Because for me, I could see you saying this and then I could feel where you're coming from because you can say, that could have been me, that could have been my son, that could have been your, you know, my wife, my husband, my, you know, my partner. It could have been anyone that looks like me that's close to my family or whatever. And, and I think when you said that, I, I just, I kind of sat back in the chair and I was like, wow. Now that sets the tone. And that lets everybody know, you know, I'm, I'm the VP, I'm the president, but don't, for like my students would say, don't get it twisted. Let me put that out at the beginning 
And then I, I love it. I mean, I was taking so many notes. I couldn't write fast enough because I thought, because I know something's going to happen. Yep. And I think our challenge is for us to create space for other people to bring their humanity mm-hmm. and their vulnerability into the room. That's powerful. Well, I mean, we are out of time, but that, I mean, that, that whole, wow. I mean, that's going to be on my mind all day today because I like the way you put it out there. And then you said, now here is where we're going to go. We need to heal. And here's the bigger issue that someone or some ones could think that that was okay. And I, and I'd like the way you stated that because then it sits back and it makes people who are listening to you realize, Oh, you know, I've done some things. And I mean, even though that might be more uh, humiliating, but then maybe it's something I did. And it just makes people check themselves when the way that you framed it. And I appreciate that because now that I've heard that, that's going to help me and others who are listening to think about that process that you just mapped out for us in order, you know, for us to deal with the things that are happening on our campus. And I truly, 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 truly appreciate that. And I hope our listeners do as well. So we are out of time, but I definitely want to talk with you more. Um, um, and maybe we can do another podcast about the online community piece. We don't, um, because I, I know that is something that we're all, if, if we're not all doing, we are wanting to do or, or, or transforming to that piece. And so how do we support our online community? So I definitely would love to uh, speak about that. But in the meantime, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us today. And if you found value, and I definitely have, in what you heard, please share the podcast with other student affairs practitioners. I look forward to having you join us next time as we share practical tips to aid you in your own student affairs journey. Until then, bye for now. Thanks for listening to Student Affairs Voices from the Field. If you enjoyed your time with us, tell a friend. If there's a topic you want us to discuss, let us know. If you want to be a guest, tell us your story. Email us at savoices at naspa.org. You can find all our info at naspa.org slash savoices. See you next time.